Morning. Brother Jason, thank you. Well done. I am convinced that even as the ripples go out from the ministry you've already engaged over these years, they're going to be accompanied by prayers from this people for your uh, for future endeavors. Praise God for your next chapter. I wish you well. God's best. Both of you, all your family. I invite all the rest of you to uh, open your Bibles and to find the New Testament book of Titus, chapter 3. Yeah, we're in chapter 3 already, starting at verse 3. And uh, you can find it in your pew Bibles on page, pages this time, 998 and 999. It's so close to 1,000. <sighs> anyway, today's the fifth uh, message in a series of six entitled, Plant Church, Repeat. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the giver of these scriptures. And I will say this is going to sound familiar on the heels of our confession of faith moments ago. Hear God's word. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, each one of us has been escorted to this moment and this place by you. You have seen fit to allow us to gather as a family of families to worship, to adore you, to receive from your Holy Spirit what you have always intended to pour into us. So now, Father, we humbly ask, fill us, give us more of you, and take away the obstacles that we so easily put in your way. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. It's very likely that each of us has spoken too soon. What I mean by that is, while conversing with someone, or maybe just passing by a conversation that other people are having, you hear something, but not an entire statement. And perhaps you, like I, have responded poorly or inappropriately at that moment, because we had limited information. Uh, Pretty sure we've all done that. Were you embarrassed by that? Did you unknowingly volunteer for something you hadn't planned to? 
Did you hurt the feelings of that other person? Yeah, maybe. I have. Well, I'm going to make a statement that might be misunderstood if heard only in part. Please listen to what I say and wait to form an opinion until I've finished. How about if I uh, give you a signal? Uh, What if I just raise my hand like this? That one right there. When you see that hand next, I'm done talking and want you to think about what I just said. All right. I know this is going to be risky for me as an ordained PCA pastor to speak this to a bunch of Reformed Presbyterians who are very savvy about Bible knowledge. And there's no small number of pretty skilled theologians in this room, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here we go. When it comes to obtaining eternal life, each of us is saved only by good works. 100% by works, just not our own. (laughs) Are we good? I'm pretty sure you agree with me. You agree with me, right? Okay, good. We've read it twice already. He saved us not because of works done by us. Well, that's not in code. That's just a fact. It's his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection that are the good works of Jesus, and the benefits of those are all for us. That's spectacular. Who else would do that for you? Who could? No one. So, knowing how wonderful it is to be the recipients of such an amazing grace, let's enter into the story now and look for the mind, the heart, and the will of God In one of my very favorite passages of scripture, top five for sure, guaranteed, this portion of the book of Titus. I think we're going to find here the bye-bye-byes, all by ourselves, rescued by God, and heirs, that's with an H, by hope. All by ourselves, that's the who, no, not the band, rescued by God, that's the what, And heirs by hope, that is the why of being justified by God's grace. Verse 3, all by ourselves. Foolish, deceived, malicious, envious, hateful. I'm going to stop. If these were ingredients for a recipe, the dish would have to be named Hellbound Hash. Or maybe in South Carolina, just maybe something like, well, bless their hearts, casserole. (laughs) These unflattering characteristics that are uh, mentioned in this verse remind us very much, don't they, of chapter one of this book where there was a parade of lostness. And we we learned of the desperate situation of the, the people there on the island of Crete. Their culture was just imploding. And after a litany of negative things to say about the the inhabitants, even by some of them. We then spoke over these last few weeks of their unfolding drama and their deliverance. And I've really enjoyed this part of the journey. However, the Cretans are not the ones being described here, at least not exactly. The... uh, 
The pronoun we, perched right there on the threshold of verse 3, must be attributed to someone else, actually to someone's. To, first of all, the writer and also the recipient of this biblical letter. That, first of all, the Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, ritual-keeping Apostle Paul, and his protege, Titus. They're the we, initially, in this text. Linguistically and logically, they they are the subjects uh, spoken of in here. And how profound, indeed, was Paul's transformation? His conversion was the real deal, that he could actually say, I was like that. All of his boasts before had been in his lineage and in his many accomplishments. But that all changed when his heart and his spirit were made alive. Then his boasting became only focused on Jesus, his Christ, and service to him. And I think his honesty here, I I think this revelation of his own soul helps us perhaps maybe even relate better to him, to the apostle. He's not on some big pedestal somewhere. He's just like us. However, there's more to say about that plural pronoun we there in verse 3. And for those of you keeping score, this is where I get to meddling. The we in verse 3 also includes every single one of you. And before you say it, yes, me too. Every single one of us, all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve are included in this we. Each of us, each of us who have belly buttons were desperately flawed and failing in our own existence by ourselves. We had nothing to recommend us to God. Oh, it's almost certainly true. None of us were as evil or awful as we could have been, probably. And, and perhaps we did many good things and said many fine words and, and helped people in times of their need or Or maybe we're just thoughtful enough sometimes not to say something that was hurtful. That seems like it should be to our credit. We may have done those things and shown compassion, but yet there is no one, no one who is exempt from the righteous indictment against us from a holy God that is shown to us in Romans 3, verse 10, and so many other places. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. I know you just heard that, but I'm going to give you a quiz. How many are righteous from birth? Yeah, I I can help you. It's a round number. Nobody. Uh, No one. Is that startling at all? Wasn't there some really good people someplace, sometime? No. And when I said belly button, by the way, I'm just referring to being born of human parents. They themselves were born dead in their spirits. And think about it. Adam and Eve didn't have belly buttons. But everybody since them has been lost as a result of the condemnation and the curse that was put on creation because of that fall back in Eden's garden. So we've inherited from our natural parents that desperate lostness in our spirit. Because at our core, every human being is hopelessly dead, is inwardly empty, and totally unaware of our pending doom. 
Naturally, in that condition, of course we're going to spend our days slaving to sin and hating one another. Of course we are. There aren't many other options. It does come naturally. What's, what's the verdict then? Unlovable. Completely, permanently unlovable. Except verses four through six. Rescued by God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, ooh, just like we heard last week, grace has appeared. And it came in the person of Jesus, and he came in order to, to change everything, to change the lives of those Cretans on the island all those years ago that would believe in him, to change that which was unlovable into something loved, that which was perishing into something that would continue, and that which was dead into living. It says, God, our Savior, and he did only what a redeemer can do, what a mighty redeemer can do. Scripture says, he saved us. Full stop. There's almost nothing to say after that. But I will. He suffered the punishment that our sins deserved. That was a cross. And he rescued us from an eternity apart from him. A horror of which we cannot comprehend. When we trusted in him, that happened for us. What he had done all those years ago was attributed to us. And simultaneously, he saved us, not just from eternal punishment, but he saved us from a futile, lost, and hopeless life right here, which would have been dominated by unquenchable guilt and passionate jealousy. That's what the scripture says. He saved us on the basis of his works, which the Father have deemed acceptable. That much we've already agreed upon. The payment made in our behalf and the benefits of Christ's victory over sin and death are imputed. You've heard that before. Imputed means they're, they're just freely given. They're accounted to us. They're, they're now our valuable asset, just freely given to us in Christ because of his victory over sin and his rising from the dead. Uh, that's amazing to me. I, I've been aware of Christ as my Savior for four and a half decades. I'll never get over the fact that that's true. That he saved me forever and ever. He rescued me from a life of futility. And he wants me to live fully and freely. Because he empowers me to do so. And I can see that path in front of me now. Which was invisible before. That's what the Bible says. And that's exactly what Titus declared to his Cretan brothers and sisters. They knew the depth of their unworthiness. And they had reason now in Christ to rejoice in the love of God like they never had before. Can you imagine? People coming from their homes. People gathering in public places. The Cretans who had been saved from all of their lostness. They're, they're, they're talking to one another. Isn't this amazing? God did this for us. Yeah, we're free. I declare that same message to you today. Okay, perhaps we can work on our public displays of rejoicing. <laughs> In Christ, you are free. Amen. And needs a little work. 
name it. The story's told of a medieval monk who announced to his gathered flock one week that the next Lord's Day, the message was going to be the love of God. So one week hence, that next Sunday evening when the faithful had gathered together and the sky had fully darkened, the monk entered into that unlit chamber with a single candle. In slow and silent reverence, he approached the crucifix which was in their midst. And first he held the flickering candle up to the crown of thorns and bowed his head. Momentarily, he lowered that candle to reveal the imprint of the scarred hand of Jesus. And then last, the flicker shone on the wound that remained in Jesus' side. With bowed head, the monk extinguished that candle retired to his cloister in sacred silence. Add to this picture only the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, and we see the merciful and loving works of God displayed powerfully without words. But with these words, we're encouraged. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Why do you wash your clothes, your car? They're dirty. You're not comfortable with the filth remaining there. We've been delivered, we've been washed clean. On the inside, we've been given a new warm heart that we did not have before. That's the regeneration. And it's all been done by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's Christmas and Easter all wrapped up in one. Praise the Lord. And and this, I think, could easily be missed. In verse 4, there's an identifier. It says, our deliverer is God our Savior. In verse 6, it identifies our deliverer as Christ our Savior. This couplet is yet another logical, even algebraic expression of the declaration of Jesus being fully God himself. God equals Savior. Christ equals Savior. God equals Christ. Two weeks in a row, we've come on some very specific verses that declare Jesus Christ is not only Lord, he's God Almighty, eternal and forever, one of the three persons of the Trinity. Amen. I believe it. He's been revealed to us in a truly divine humanity. He alone. And I do believe it. But I have a question. Maybe you do. Why did he save me? Or you? Or anyone? Ever? Verses 7 and 8. Heirs, with an H, by hope. So that being justified by his grace. This built-in purpose statement here at 
in this verse of, of Titus chapter 3. It begins with a, a classic theme of the apostle Paul, justification by grace. You've heard that so many times. Of course Paul's going to put it here. And as you rightly imagine, justification stems from the root justice. Now, in a perfect world and in perfect justice, the guilty are punished and the innocent go free. If you do the crime, do the time. If you haven't failed, you're not going to jail. But we don't inhabit that world. We don't. There's no perfect justice. Humanity is inherently guilty of outright rebellion against our creator. And each of us is condemned by our own sin. None of us can undo that sentence of death against ourselves, much less help anyone else. And perfection is the standard. No varying. Perfection. Well, he saved us, justified us by his grace, and found us in that condition where the perfection of of Christ alone would be sufficient, and we lacked it all. Something had to change. It did. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Just as if I'd never sinned. You've heard that before. What is justification? He's made us clean from the inside as if we had never sinned. Our slate is clear before a righteous God. God has wiped away the sin in me and everyone who believes based on one thing alone, the righteousness of Christ, the benefits of which we have received freely. We receive forgiveness in him. We receive a new future. We receive a new name. And we become family. And we then stand to inherit eternity. We are heirs of heaven. Now, ordinarily, what's necessary for someone to be identified as an heir? Well, Basically, a person with assets wishing to share and pass along those assets to someone else creates a document and says, so-and-so or someone, whether it's a person, an organization, even a pet, this will be passed to that entity upon my death. It's not complicated. Family members are most often named as heirs, but you probably can think of a story or two where Family members were notorious for not being named as heirs. Black sheep comes to mind. Public disgrace comes to mind. But routinely we hear about universities and charities and Fluffy the Cat being named as inheritors of vast fortunes. Interestingly, a complete stranger, folks who are completely unworthy of the inheritance, for any number of reasons, can also be named an heir. How? It all depends upon the one formalizing the arrangement. The one who has assets and is going to die. Spiritually speaking, Jesus Christ possesses all the assets of heaven and eternity. 
And he has willed that undeserving people like you and me should inherit eternal life because of his sacrificial death on the cross. It's not fair. It's not justice. It's grace. And it's wonderful. This grace which appeared in the person of Christ makes us heirs of righteousness and we are secure in the knowledge that eternal life is our certain goal. Certain? How can I be that confident? Is it true? Well, because the Bible says we have assurance according to the hope of eternal life. Hope in this world often is nothing more than simply a strong desire to, to receive some gift or some gratification in the future. And therefore, since in this world, you're never sure it's the hope of maybe. Maybe this will happen. And I hope your dreams come true. They won't, but I hope they do. But in Scripture, hope which is promised by God is the hope of certainty. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Our God is a consuming fire. He has consumed our guilt and punishment. In Christ our King, we receive, we inherit unshakable, never-ending kingdom. The king has spoken. Long live the king. And we with him. Wow. I'm intrigued by this tiny book of Titus and have been for a very long time. It, I mean, it's just packed with with all the negative traits and unwise choices and personality flaws of the lost Cretans. But it also consistently calls converts of every stripe to good works. Paul invites a heavenly mindedness even as he calls us to do good things here on this earth. Last week in chapter 2 when we're reading about the different, the older and younger, the, the men and women, the children, the slaves, they were called to do something because of what changed in them. They were called to do these good works based on what God had done for them. That was clear. It said there that God had saved us so that we might be zealous for good works. That was last time. He wants us for his own possession. He wants us to be those, like in our current verse, are eager to do good works. And next week, in addition to verse 8, again, we're going to add verse 14. Get ready. It's about good works. We're saved by good works, just not our own. That makes sense, really, though, that the Bible, this tiny book, would have these two very different elements in it. Really? Doesn't it? What was the one thing 
that the Cretans were least capable of doing good works? What was the one thing that they became empowered to do when they got converted? Good works. What would it be that they might demonstrate to the world around them that would say, we've been changed. Good works. So this book serves as a a training manual for broken people who've been made whole, like me. For those previously unfit, then miraculously made capable of doing good works in the name of Jesus. This book is our training manual today, even though it's ancient. And I'm grateful. I really am. I'm grateful for the invitation to come here and and read these words with you week by week. Titus 3, verses 3 through 8, long for me, has been what I call the gospel in miniature. What we have here is in short form glimpses of the experiences of every single person who's ever come to Christ. Just a glimpse, here and there. Before Christ, spiritually dead. Something happened, they were made alive. Life afterwards, living fully. The before, the what happened, and the what next. If you're in Christ, you have that story. That's your outline right there. People in Crete had that as well. And in the 70s and 80s, I kind of crafted my own message of speaking to people about Jesus when I would share the gospel. And hear me, I did not say share my faith. It's far, vastly more preferable that lost people learn the gospel than to duplicate my faith. As a human being, my faith is fluid. And sometimes it just isn't worth emulating. But the gospel? The gospel is powerful to save. Because Jesus is the same yesterday and today and what? Forever. The gospel's not going to change. Neither is its power. Neither will the outcomes of it being proclaimed truth in spirit. I suspect some of you have crafted your own testimony along these guidelines. What was, what happened, what now? Good for you. Because in a moment's notice, then, you can retell the greatest story ever told. You can participate in this grand adventure. So I ask you to keep on doing that. By God's grace, our our works and our words really are contributing to the planting and the re planting of the church of Jesus Christ on earth right now. And a surprising fact is this. You can be successful as a witness for Christ every single time you try. Every single time you try. How can I say that? Well, it's true. If you simply will take the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to the Father. You, Christ, Holy Spirit, Father. What's your call? Mine? To initiate a conversation with someone else. That you and I can do. In fact, that's all you and I can do. Everything else is entirely up to God the Father. 
everything else. You can't create the ends. You can simply be part of the means. And he wants us to be. It's a formula that is successful every time it's tried, regardless of whether or not you see visible evidence in front of you or there's a complete lack of any evidence. Heaven knows. Paul and Titus, I think, would tell us, devote yourselves, therefore, to good works, to show forth the Christ in you, because these things are excellent and profitable for people. All people. Your people. And please know, it is not a lowly thing to be the servant of a great king. Christ in us. That, that's life, actually. That's real life. And it's excellent. By the way, the rest of my top five scripture certainly would be Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Those are kind of my life verses. My next would be Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I have adopted that as my own personal statement of faith. How can you improve on that? So I borrowed all of that and said that's my statement of faith. What else do I love about scripture? One of them, my favorites is from Zechariah 4, 6. It's not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Puts me in my place and gives me hope at the same time. And the one that gives me the warmth, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. In fact, he's so happy about being with you, he's singing over you and me. Come on. Maybe someday you'll tell me what are your favorite scripture passages. I want you to think about it. There's no hurry. You needn't speak too soon. But I'd be surprised, though, if you didn't include some scriptures declaring that despite our sins being many, his mercy is more. Let's pray and then let's sing. Our Father, we adore you as best we know how. Help us in our weakness and foolishness to adore you more. We recognize you as being the one true king of heaven and earth and all eternity. There is none other. There couldn't be. And you will always be ruling and reigning your creation and beyond in perfect righteous justice because of mercy and grace. We confess our unworthiness to receive any of the good things from you. We are those people who were desperately wicked. We were being hated and hating others, and it was all we knew, and we did it really well. But Lord, we also are very, very thankful this morning that you have translated us out of one community into another. You have taken away the scourge of sin and the horror of its punishment and you have made us now, together with Christ, alive, truly alive, able to live and to move about in honor of you, then we should gratefully worship our God who is a consuming fire. Father, I ask that as we dismiss from this place today, 
that it would be that some would have heard from you in that inner place. That there would have been a message communicated that you had always wanted to tell them. And they finally received it today. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And that salvation is a gift. And that heaven is forever. Oh Lord. Translate some out of darkness and death into light and life. Even right now. God forgive me a sinner. Give me eternal life. Thank you. That's the kingdom of heaven in our midst. So today, Father, be honored, be worshipped, and strengthen your children. We have all the time necessary to do everything you want us to do, including rest. Hallelujah. Amen.